2: Welcome
3: to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
4: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. In this episode of the podcast, I'm going to be chatting with science journalist and author Rebecca Boyle about her new book, Our Moon, How Earth's Celestial Companion Transformed the Planet. Uh, it's such a good read. Highly recommend it, uh, as, as I'll touch on later in the, in the interview itself. Uh, this is a great week to read a book about the moon because, of course, uh, we're getting into celebrations of Lunar New Year. So without further ado, let's get right to that interview. Hi, Rebecca. Welcome to the show.
3: Thanks for having me.
4: So the new book is Our Moon How Earth's Celestial Companion Transformed the Planet out now in physical ebook and audio formats. Can you tell us what inspired you to write the book?
3: I remember being a kid and sitting on the floor of my elementary school library probably in 5th grade and listening to a vinyl record of the Apollo transcript or the, the Apollo recordings and just being blown away and and like I I couldn't believe that they were actually up there and I would look at the moon at night and it felt so far away, but also so close and so much a part of my life that this sort of just, it blew my mind, the idea of Mm -hmm. people walking around up there. And I think I never lost that connection. You know, I write about astronomy a lot right now. And often the moon is sort of like it gets short shrift. It's kind of annoying (laughs) for astronomers. Like it's really bright. It's up all the time. If you're trying to study distant galaxies and quasars and things like that, it's actually an obstacle. And so I often find myself kind of defending it and like, no, the moon is really special and the moon is cool, you know? And I think that's sort of how I first approached this was like, I want this to be an appreciation of the moon. And then as I started writing it, it became more like, no, the moon is really actually super important for everything that's ever happened here. And the book turned into more of an argument about that, that like the moon is central to our existence and it's not just this beautiful thing that we should care about. It's like it's the reason we're here.
4: In your first chapter, you discuss the environment of the moon. And, and I guess some of this we perhaps get from just by being familiar with the famous footage of lunar landings and sort of general mainstream understanding of the moon. Uh, but but what, what details of the lunar environment do you feel are, are most often lacking from sort of mainstream understanding of this environment?
3: I think the thing that I go back to is the sharpness. And I mean, sharp in terms of the light, like the contrast between light and dark, there's no atmosphere to refract the light at all and soften the sun's glare or to kind of bring light into the shadows. It's all literally black or white. (laughs) Like there's Mm -hmm. either complete sunlight or complete darkness. And sharpness just physically, the rocks themselves are really jagged and blocky and, you know, crystalline, sharp, literally. The dust itself is sharp dust on Earth is soft and it's mostly from life. I mean, most dust is from like human skin and pet dander and pollen and sort of the discards of living things. And it's always sort of rounded and kind of, you know, softened by life and by by Earth itself, by wind and rain and erosion. And there's nothing like that on the moon. So even the dust is like little knives. And I don't think people think about that. You know, when we imagined being back up there, it was really annoying for the Apollo astronauts. They would breathe it in and they'd go inside the lunar lander and take their helmets off. And they would all reported this like stuffy nose congestion. It was like itchy and they would be coughing. You know, it was really irritating. And it was because it was really abrasive. It's really terrible <laughs> to breathe it in and to have it on you. And it's also really static-y, like it's really difficult to get off because, you know, again, there's no water, there's no atmosphere, there's no moisture at all to sort of take the edge off. And so it sticks to everything with static electricity and it's really difficult to remove. So the dust is going to be a huge obstacle, I think, for people going back up there. But I don't think we think about just like the sharpness of the moon. It's, It's not like Earth.
4: Now um one of the things that I love about the book and I think uh, our our listeners are going to really get into as well is, is that of course you discuss the, the history as we understand it of the moon you you get into the the human and also the human history of our understanding of it both scientific and uh, folkloric mythological etc uh, what did the ancient sumerians seemingly get right about the creation of earth's moon
3: yeah i loved this i this was something i found just researching the book i i got really into Sumerian history and Babylonian history and Assyrian, you know, all these different cultures that span the area, what's now Iraq and parts of Syria and Iran. Um, and this is sort of the first literate civilizations on earth. The first written records come from the Sumerian culture. And some of the oldest creation stories are from the Sumerian age. And one of them is this, they're the creation tablets, which are these literally like tablets. Like you imagine, you know, Moses (laughs) holding these clay tablets that were handed down. And it's the same, that literally is the same thing. This is how people were keeping written records at the time on clay tablets that would harden in the sun. And the Sumerian creation tales have these whole long stories of how the earth and the moon and the oceans came to be. And the story is that there were these two kind of God monsters. (laughs) And, um, they were separate deities, but then they got married, you know, they united, and their union gave birth to all the other lesser gods. And then these gods kind of started conspiring, you know, as many mythologies hold, these, th- these sorts of stories. People were arguing about, you know, who was in charge, who was more powerful. And these are like spirit deities, but also human, you know, human form There were two main gods, Apsu and Tiamat, and I'm probably butchering the pronunciation. So Tiamat is um, salty water, which is the oceans. Apsu is fresh water. And after they, you know, are united in this sacred marriage, Tiamat gives birth to all the other gods of creation. And there are a few different translations of this story. And the one that I liked is uh, Stephanie Daly's translation, uh, Myths from Mesopotamia. And in this version, the younger gods, the newer gods, are like loud and annoying and bratty and disrespectful. And so, and Apsu can't sleep, so he decides to destroy them. Um, Tiamat is upset about this and wants to protect her young. So she alerts the older son, Enki, who's the god of wisdom, and Enki kills Apsu. And it's this great battle And in the battle, you know, the gods are destroyed and torn apart. Tiamat herself doesn't survive, and she's rended in two. And one half of her becomes the heavens, and the other half becomes the earth. And I just enjoyed reading about this mythology as I was reading about the Sumerians, because I was trying to connect the oldest written languages to our understanding of the moon. But it turned out to be a really useful metaphor for the formation of the moon, because a very similar thing happens, you know. This sort of other being, other planet um, arrives in Earth's orbit and destroys Earth, and one half becomes the Earth, and one half becomes the Moon. And it's—I felt like it was a—it was a helpful way for me to imagine this event, and it just seemed like a useful metaphor for what actually happened.
4: Now, which is the most widely accepted moon formation theory today?
3: So this is still a pretty active area of debate, which I find super interesting because, I mean, it's the moon. Like, shouldn't we know? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, don't you think we should have a better idea of what happened? Um, But there are some really interesting things about the moon. And one is that it's very unique in the solar system. There's nothing else like this. It's huge relative to Earth. It's really far away from Earth. And, you know, it has this sort of density that's lighter than Earth. But yet it's materials. It's like down to the atoms in the rocks of the moon. It's almost identical to Earth. In some cases, it is identical to Earth. So there's all these sort of weird characteristics. And this is a difficult story to disentangle. You know, we we think and we learned in Apollo that probably what happened was this giant impact. And this is just called the giant impact theory. So that at some point early in Earth's history, another planet was, you know, moving around the same orbit as Earth, collided with our early planet. And both this impactor, Theia, which is the Greek god um, that's the mother of the moon, Selene in Greek mythology, so he named this planet Theia, crashes into Earth, Earth and Theia are totally destroyed, and somehow in the cloud of debris that follows, Earth and the moon both coalesce. And this is one way of describing how they can look so alike, but yet be so different and distinct worlds. But. The particulars of this are still really hotly debated, actually, and we're not really sure (laughs) how this went down. And some of it is because we know that the moon is there. We know its size. We know its speed relative to Earth, how far it's moving away from us, how quickly it's leaving us. And all its rotation speed, our rotation speed, all these factors have to come into play. Like there are some just physical facts that we have to explain. And yet, some of the other physical evidence doesn't really seem to match up with our models of how this could be. So there's a lot of people working on this and trying to figure out exactly how this could have happened. And it's interesting to me for a few reasons. And one is just, I mean, like I said, it's the moon. Like, it's, we should know. <laughs> Don't you want to know? Like, is it, wouldn't it be amazing to know how the moon got here and how we all got here and how those things are related? And I think it's also just really interesting because it has implications for the history of evolution on Earth. You know, if this is a really unique system, if there's no other place like Earth and our moon in the solar system, which that's the case, maybe that's the case for other solar systems. You know, maybe other stars that have rocky planets in the habitable zones, maybe those need a large moon sort of sculpting their existence for life to be able to take hold. And I think if we can come to understand a little bit more about how our moon got here, that will give us some insight into, you know, how unique we are maybe in the whole broader universe. Uh,
4: Based on your research, and and you you get into this uh, quite a bit in the book, do you think life would have been possible on Earth without our moon and and or what might life have looked like without the moon's influence?
3: Yeah, I think about this a lot. (laughs) I mean, we don't know, you know, how life arose here. We don't know exactly when. We don't know exactly where. We have some good ideas. We think Probably it was in the oceans, either in deep ocean vents on these mid-ocean ridges where Earth's crust sort of has these rifts in it, or somewhere, somewhere closer to the surface in tidal pools and these sort of like cycles of hydration and dehydration where the tide comes in, it moistens the rocks, it gets the, it flows in more fresh water, and then the tide recedes and the water dries up and, you know, it sort of becomes thicker and and murkier and some interesting chemical reactions can happen in that sort of cycle of ebb and flow. Um, And, you know, I I think the moon is really responsible for both of those effects. If life evolved in tidal pools, if it originated there, then we can thank the moon for that flux of water. If life originated in the deep ocean, the moon's probably what dragged it up and mixed Mm. the entire ocean and stirred it you know, like a ladle stirring a pot of soup. <laughs> like imagine spinning your spoon around in a big stock pot and all of the onions kind of like flow up to the surface. You know, that's what the moon does through its tide. And so either way, I think the moon played a huge role in fostering the evolution of life if it didn't spark it into being in the first place. And maybe that also happened. We're we never we're never going to know, but I do think the moon's role in early evolution has probably been overlooked.
4: I like the soup analogy, though, because, yeah, you can imagine the, like a soup that is never stirred as a, as ingredients are added. So even as I guess as you, you have increasingly more complex forms of life, right, they're, they're not going to necessarily be moved around the entire planet.
3: Right. Yeah, they're not going to be able to move around. They're not going to be able to access the nutrients they need to feed themselves. You know, even if it's not just the life forms themselves, but the nutrients in the ocean and just material from runoff from the land into the water and how those things mix, those would have all sunk to the bottom and just been silt and couldn't have been used by the chain of life. And I think, you know, the moon's tide has a huge influence on the movement of water from the deep ocean up to the surface. And it, we know that that's true. And we know that was true when it was much closer earlier in Earth history. And it was probably having an even bigger effect on all of that material in the water.
1: Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.
4: Uh, you, you mentioned uh, just how familiar we are with the moon, and it's easy to sort of take it for granted. Um, one of the, uh, the the interesting things about the about the moon that you uh, you point out in the book is that, of course, the moon uh, is roughly the same size as our sun, as visible from the Earth, like you know, making things like a solar eclipse yes. possible. How do you think the? you cover multiple ancient and traditional interpretations of the moon in your book? How do you think the general flavor of global traditions might have differed if the sun and the moon were not roughly the same size in the sky?
3: That's a good question. I mean, this is a fun thing to think about because I think it makes so much sense to people that they were sort of opposites because of the fact that they look the same. You know, occasionally the moon blocks the sun. People for a long time had no idea that was what was happening physically. Like, we, people guessed at it in antiquity, but up until, you know, the earliest sort of written literate cultures, people had no way of understanding what was happening. And even the ancient Greeks didn't really understand what was happening. They didn't know what the moon was. (laughs) Um, And I think because they're roughly the same size, I mean, they they look the same size in the sky, um, it's sort of an obvious... You know the idea of opposites, yin and yang, is one of the Chinese traditions. You know, coming and going, black and white, male and female, all these sort of dualities that people have. Death and life, death and resurrection. The moon is a is an interesting way to represent those ideas. And the moon and the sun together. There's one that lights the day and one that lights the night. I mean, that's in Genesis. It's mm-hmm. one of the first lines of the Old Testament that you know on the seventh day. Um, you know, Earth is created, but he gives us the sun to light the day and the moon to light the night. And the second light is the moon. So I think it's it's just a natural way of, of imagining the cosmos. Like, of course there is one in the day and of course there's one at night. Like, why wouldn't that be, <laughs> you know? And so mm-hmm. if the moon was very different or if it was small or if it was maybe like the moons of Mars, these like dinky little asteroid crumbs, you know, maybe mm-hmm. we wouldn't have had that mythic grasp on opposites the way that we do because of this lunar symbolism.
4: Now, dipping into current and future lunar exploration, um, do you think there's a substantial scientific advantage to sending human beings back to the moon in a, in a, as opposed to you know, sticking strictly with, with probes and so forth?
3: Yes, I definitely do. And I think there's a few reasons why. You know, There's no substitute for human eyes and no substitute for human judgment And a human pilot, you know, I mean, one of the maybe lesser known now, but more well-known examples from Apollo is Neil Armstrong's landing. Like he's, they were pretty off their target when they first arrived and the eagle is descending toward the lunar surface. they missed their landing spot by a few miles and, you know, they're running out of fuel. He has to land and he has to make a decision really quickly and set down without tipping over not on the rim of a crater, but in a pretty flat area, not on one leg on a boulder, but like in a pretty clear field so that the whole thing is standing upright so they can get home. And, you know, he pulls it off. And I think if we didn't have a human pilot, an exceptional human pilot in Neil Armstrong, we've seen what happens. I mean, Japan just landed on the moon a few weeks ago in January. And it flipped over. <laughs> and it sent telemetry, this lander SLIM is its acronym, is, is still there. And they're hoping that sunlight on the panels will continue to let, let it wake up as the moon orbits the earth and the sun. And the angle of light changes, it brings more sunlight onto its solar panels. But it, it landed belly up, essentially. And, you know, this was a very complicated and very detailed probe built by the Japanese Space Agency, which has had an incredible success landing on asteroids, you know, and other other planets. Like JAXA is one of the best space agencies in terms of successes, and they still had issues. And they crashed a few months prior to that in a different lunar attempt. And so, you know, I, I think there's even just getting there physically, there's no substitute for a really well-trained and equipped pilot And then, you know, when they were on the moon, the astronauts had spent a lot of time doing geology training in Hawaii and Arizona, just sort of being able to understand how rocks look different from one another and what that might mean. And Neil Armstrong grabbed the first samples, and within a few minutes of touching down, and there's still some of the best samples we got because he knew what he was looking for. And successive missions too had really detailed astronaut training. The last Apollo mission, Apollo 17, had a geologist. Jack Schmidt was a trained field geologist. And he had some specific things he wanted. And he knew where to look for them. And these are really important samples to this day. So I think, you know, having people up there, walking around, making judgment calls, snap decisions the way humans can do. There's, even with the most advanced technology we have, robots are no substitute, (laughs) I think, for human brains. Um, And I think there's something more sort of just fundamental about it. I don't think, I think that humans being up there and connecting the rest of humanity to the moon through their presence is just an irreplaceable phenomenon. Like a robot being up there is not quite as impressive. And that robots are awesome. You know, we've landed cars on Mars and helicopter (laughs) on Mars, you know, and these are incredible pieces of technology that are extensions of our ideas and our ingenuity. But I still think humans being able to walk up there and transcend that boundary is just irreplaceable.
4: Now, human spacecraft first reached the moon in 1959 and and humans landed on the moon for the first time in 1969. Uh, What might we expect to happen on the moon with humans and or probes between now and 2059 and 2069? (laughs)
3: I mean, it depends on who you ask. I think there are a lot of people who are really excited about people being up there permanently and that the beginning of that will be happening here pretty soon in 2024. NASA's Artemis program intends to land the first woman, the first person of color on the moon, become, you know, the first to go back to the moon since we left it in 1972. And there's a lot of momentum for that. And I think, you know, We'll see. (laughs) We'll see how quickly it happens. NASA's goal is to land by no earlier than September of 2026 as of right now. But that could change and probably will change because they have a lot of reasons to be slowing things down because some of the companies building the equipment to get there are having issues or taking a long time to finish their tasks. So these things take time. And I think, you know, no one's really expecting it to happen overnight. But I think by 2059, by 2069, you know, a century after the first lunar landings, I think it's very likely that we'll have permanent human habitation up there, in some sort of modest settlement, you know, with with really austere conditions, and you know, people who are really well trained and well equipped to be able to live there for chunks of time. I don't think it's going to be, you know, a city. I don't envision it being this permanent, like, you know, I. I one analogy I think of sometimes when looking at moon exploration in the future is sort of Western expansion in the US. And I think this is sometimes problematic <laughs> because some mm-hmm. of that language is still very much, you know, wrapped up in colonial mindsets and, and sort of trampling over land and, and people who got here first. And, you know, there are no cultures on the moon. There are no indigenous peoples on the moon who will be oppressed. But I still think that, you know, the ideas that carried us into Western expansion in the United States are very similar to how people feel about settling the moon and I hope that we step back a little bit and think about that and consider why we want to be there and what we want to do um, so I don't I don't know if I think it's going to be like you know a company town a railroad town kind of like depot mm-hmm. but I do think there will be experiments up there happening you know repeatedly I think, there's likely to be some kind of observatory on the far side doing astronomy that isn't you know, difficult or impossible from Earth. I think there will be companies taking people and supplies and scientists up there back and forth for research purposes. And because that will be happening, I think there will be sort of a secondary economy enabling those things and providing services. And that's one of the goals that NASA has. I mean, this is the entire purpose of their commercial lunar payload services program. Which is to encourage startups and small companies and big companies to develop technology that will take people, even and supplies and material to the moon, alongside NASA, where like NASA is now just a rideshare partner, (laughs) as opposed to the Mm -hmm. primary reason that we go. And I think that's probably going to happen. It just might take longer than people think.
4: Now, internationally, that that there is interest in in mining on the moon, correct? What are they? looking to mine what are the main objects
3: there are a few things that might be of value and i mean mostly it's per material that would be used up there so there's not much that's mm. really valuable on the moon that we don't have on earth there are a few things but you know it's still w- way easier <laughs> to mine for rare earth metals on this planet than it is to go to the moon and get them and come back um, but there are things like helium three is a potential resource. This is like a volatile form of helium that could be used to power nuclear reactors. Potentially, there's a lot of water, and it's not like lakes, you know, or aquifers like we imagine on Earth. But it's probably locked up in hydrated minerals, more like you know the oil sands, or maybe in ices, you know, flat fields of ice at the bottoms of permanently shadowed craters. And that could be used either for just human use or more likely for rocket fuel. If you can split up the hydrogen and oxygen bonds in water, then you have hydrogen and you have oxygen, and those can be refined into rocket fuel. And if that would be really nice to have, if you're going to go back home to Earth, you don't need to bring as much with you. Or if you want to go on somewhere else further afield to Mars or asteroids or who knows, it would be nice to have. A fuel depot <laughs> at the moon, mm-hmm. where you don't need to take as much fuel off Earth with you as you leave.
4: Now, in terms of uh, conservation on the moon, which you, you've touched on already, uh, is it uh, how much do we have actually ironed out in terms of like international cooperation regarding that? Like, uh, I mean, it, we have there's so little on the moon that we have put there, but uh, if if all this goes to uh, according to plan, that will change. Um, are, are there any like um do, do we have any agreements in place to protect the moon to any degree
3: kind of <laughs> so there's i mean there's not really an international agreement that everybody has signed on to there's the 1967 outer space treaty which is you know dates to the apollo era and the space race and there are the new artemis accords which is set up by NASA, but has a bunch of signatories, I think Belgium just became the 44th country to sign on to the Artemis Accords. And this is sort of a multilateral international agreement. It's not binding. It's not through the UN even. It's sort of just all the spacefaring countries coming together to agree to a few certain things. And mostly it's things like interoperability of equipment. So like if you're going to go up there and put up a capsule and have people in there Let's make sure that it can dock with, you know, this other guy's space agency equipment so you can help each other out if you need to. Mm -hmm. Um, There are provisions that protect lunar heritage sites. So like they would ask you to not land like on top of the Apollo 11 landing site, you know, and (laughs) disturb that. Um, There are things like, you know, let's make sure that if we extract material that, you know, we're not trampling on someone else's ability to extract material. Some of those provisions, I think, are interesting because they inherently give people a claim. So there's there's a, a clause in the Artemis Accords that says you can't disturb anybody else's equipment or site or you know resource material or prospecting ability. And because there's no atmosphere and there's no water, there's no any there's nothing on the moon to sort of soften your landing. <laughs> um, every landing. And every takeoff will throw up enormous amounts of lunar dust that will sometimes go into orbit and take a long time to settle. And it will be really abrasive. And so if, if we all have to agree that we're not going to disturb somebody else's landing site, then a landing site becomes that country's or that company's or that you know whoever, whatever entity can land up there. Is sort of staking a claim to that location under the Artemis Accords. And this is not official. It's not like they've all said, like, this is mine, my flag is there, it's my spot. Mm-hmm. But if you're all agreeing to not disturb one another's locations, then that's sort of inherent, you know, that these are you're staking a claim in a way. And not every country is a signatory to the Artemis Accords. Not every country is a signatory to the Outer Space Treaty. So there's there's not really an international agreement that everyone has agreed upon that will protect the moon or the people going up there or the robots going up there so it's going to be very interesting to see how this all shakes out
4: now to, to come back to um, our appreciation of the moon on earth and our experiences of the moon on earth um, I, w- I was reading um, an article you'd written for um, atlas obscura uh, on this topic, so I thought I'd ask ask this uh, for, for our listeners: uh, What is a strawberry moon, and <laughs> why is it your favorite?
3: So, a strawberry moon is one of the names for the twelve moons of the year. They each have different names depending on you know which indigenous tradition they're used, um, you know, or just history in whatever culture, whatever part of Earth you're on. Most moons have a seasonal aspect to them. Um, In February, we have the wolf moon. Um, There's the cold moon. There's a bunch of other names for different, there's the harvest moon probably is the most famous example. Mm -hmm. Um, But the strawberry moon is in early June. And I love this moon because it sort of brings summer along with it. It's called the strawberry moon because that's the time of year that strawberries are getting ripe (laughs) and they're able to Mm -hmm. be picked. And so this has the seasonal aspect but it sometimes even looks pink as it's rising, you know, in a full moon on a summer night through a hazy atmosphere with humidity in the air because it's warm in the northern hemisphere, I should say. But, you know, in, in the U.S. and Europe and um, northern northern hemisphere areas, it's the, it's this beginning of summer. It's right before the summer solstice. It's the longest nights of the year or the longest days of the year, sorry, the shortest nights. So you have a lot of sun and a lot of, you know, warmth in the evenings to sort of extend your day outside And the moon at this time of year is right kind of in your window. It's lower on the horizon. I don't know if people really notice this, but if you pay attention to the location of the sun and the moon throughout the year, they do this sort of flip, like almost like double Dutch (laughs) jump ropes kind of Mm crisscrossing in the sky. So the summer moon is in the same general area of the sky as the winter sun. And so in the winter, the moon is high overhead. And in the summer, again in the northern hemisphere, the moon is um, in, in this. In the winter, the moon is high overhead, and in the summer, the moon is sort of low on the southern horizon. So it feels more present, I guess. Like you really can't miss it if you're walking around outside. It's so dominant on the landscape. It's, it looks bigger. It looks more just with you. <laughs> and the strawberry moon is the first really like low hanging bright moon of the summer so it's just my favorite
4: now with the uh, lunar new year celebrations happening this week uh, you know first of all it's a great time to pick up this terrific book on our moon, uh, I think a great, great read for for this time of year. But uh, I was wondering, is there anything you might encourage new uh, lunar new year celebrators to remember or keep in mind about Earth's moon in addition to um you know their 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 heritage and culture?
3: I think if there's one thing I want people to take away from this book, it's that the moon is so much more powerful and more potent even in our our lives today than people might, realize. It's so much more than this beautiful nighttime companion, and it's so much more than our ability to tell time <laughs> and orient ourselves in time. You know, the Lunar New Year is a lunar solar calendar, which is one of the few, you know, remaining on Earth in, in, in current use. I mean, most of the Western world and the civil calendar use the Gregorian calendar, which is a version of the calendar that Julius Caesar introduced in 44 B.C., and it's the first one in the world that divorced the moon from time, and that's how most people use time anymore. You know, even if you're celebrating lunar New Year as part of a tradition in Asia, it's still not the way that you know global economics and global trade sort of mark time. Um, it's more of a tradition than it is a, a a literal tool anymore. But I think it's so much more than that. It's so much more powerful over our lives than people might. Think anymore. And we have artificial light at night. We live in a 24-hour news cycle. We live in a 24-hour economic cycle. And it's easy to sort of lose track of the moon's importance. But I hope people think about it in a new way after reading this book and that they understand how it's been involved in literally everything that has happened here <laughs> in ways that are much deeper and much more profound than I, I realized before I wrote the book.
4: Excellent. Well, uh, Rebecca, thanks for taking time out of your day to come on the show and chat with me here. The, the book, again, is Our Moon, How Earth's Celestial Companion Transformed the Planet. It's out now. Uh, if, if folks want to follow you online, where would you like them to go?
3: Well, in our very uh, fractured online landscape now, I'm still on Twitter or X, but not as active there anymore. Um, mostly I'm active on Instagram, other by Rebecca Boyle and i'm also on like threads and blue sky
4: thanks again to rebecca boyle for taking time out of her day to chat with me here on the podcast um again our moon how Earth's celestial companion transformed the planet out now in i think every format you could ask for uh so again highly recommend it go go check it out Stuff to Blow Your Mind is, of course, primarily a science podcast with core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. On Mondays, we do a listener mail episode. On Wednesdays, we do a short-form episode of about three different flavors. And then on Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns to just talk about a weird movie on weird house cinema. Thanks, as always, to the excellent J.J. Posway for producing the show. And if you would like to reach out via email, well, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com.